CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. How do we make it so that people have tools they can actually use? How do we make it so that increasingly payments are being done with it? How do we make liquidity in those markets? Those are the kinds of things one should be thinking about and viewing as the actual success measures. In some sense, when people adopt my software, that, that's kind of like a very hopeful thing. That, that makes me feel good about the world, right? I don't think a simple, oh, look, we got rich is a terribly good measure of success. I mean, Bernie Madoff got rich. Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn here with Bram Cohen, CEO of the Chia crypto startup and author of the Peer-to-Peer BitTorrent Protocol. We're here to talk today about that wild terminology, crypto adoption, and whatever does that mean. Thanks for joining us today, Bram. Good to be here. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit more about how you first started working on open source software? When I was in high school, I was, for fun, working on algorithms to solve randomly generated three-coloring problems, just because I thought this was an interesting problem to work on. And this was my idea of fun. And there was a professor at NYU named Martin Davis, who I just go talk to him during his office hours because, you know, nobody else does. So I would just go talk to professors during their office hours. And he introduced me to Bart Selman of Bell Labs, who was working on very similar stuff. Bart actually offered me a summer internship at Bell Labs to work on what he was working on, which was very, very similar to that stuff I was doing. And I figured out a way of improving what it was that he had come up with. So he had come up with this thing called GSAT. I made this tweet called WalkSat. And to this day, when it comes to just sort of randomized mess around with something until you might or might not find a solution, algorithms for SAT problems, WalkSat is still pretty much what they're all based off of. What year was that? Probably 1992. I think the paper came out in like 1993. I graduated from high school in 1993. So you've been working in software for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, my dad taught me how to program when I was like five or six years old. Wow. And I wrote a program that played in Connect 4 and did alpha beta pruning for it on the Commodore 64 when I was, how old was I? I was in junior high. So I was like 11 or 12 or something like that. Wow. How would you say that your view of technology and how it can impact the world has changed since you were much younger and, and learning and experimenting with those projects? I, I don't think it has, really. <laughs> I mean, um, 
it's kind of funny, even actually many of my skills in terms of what I was just working on this morning, I don't feel like I'm particularly better at this stuff than I would have been in high school had the same problems been around. Uh, I'm definitely much more experienced as a software engineer, but a lot of that just has to do with sheer breadth of knowledge and kind of having the rhythm of software development more down, being more familiar with uh, having a good testing regimen and how to go about doing that, that kind of stuff. In terms of like what software is important and what it can accomplish, the importance of software was always really obvious. And what's important to work on right now is always a, a question of the moment, right? Software by its nature, you write it and it's working. So whatever the important problems in software were 20 years ago aren't going to be the important problems in software today because people will have fixed those problems and that software will still basically work. And there's going to be some new problem that you need to figure out. I'm going to tell you a secret, Bram. Uh-huh. You were the only man that I've met so far in the crypto space that I knew about before I started covering tech. <laughs> you were the guy who invented BitTorrent. I mean, like you were like a legend. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's really weird. I went from being this like very sketchy person in the field of network protocols to this very not sketchy person in the field of cryptocurrency. And I didn't even do anything. I was the same person. <laughs> Just by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think it makes a lot of sense why someone with your professional history would gravitate toward Bitcoin. In your mind, what is the future of Bitcoin? Is it mass adoption like buying coffee or is it a savings technology or a niche technology that's used by rogues and activists? What do you imagine Bitcoin is becoming? Oh, who knows? You know, you can figure out scenarios, right? And general rule of the way technology pans out, it will never look like what you thought. At best, you can guess in these very vague terms about what's going to happen. And when you work on technology, you generally aim for saying, well, what's a problem that's a real problem? And how am I going to solve this problem as well as I possibly can so that that solution will be applicable to as many situations in the world as it possibly can be? Now, I have to admit something. Okay. I think hoarding gold is ridiculous. This is not an out there statement. Warren Buffett feels the same way. He's like, you know, there's gold. It's sitting in the ground over in Africa somewhere. And then we pay people a huge amount of money to dig this gold up out of the ground and purify it and then bury it back underground in London and pay armed guards a lot of money to stand around guarding it. And somehow this is an important activity <laughs> instead of just, I don't know, leaving the gold where it was to begin with. On some level, I don't like it when these kind of purely wasteful activities are going on and I'm not a big fan of them. And the feature set of Chia partially reflects that. In terms of where things go, the real promise of cryptocurrency is not as a speculative investment vehicle for people to make a bunch of money off of. There have been lots of those around. But in terms of what cryptocurrencies are actually good for, they're really good at doing accounting and payments. And you have this situation right now where people in some countries have serviceable banking systems that do a reasonable job of payments and keeping funds secure. Cryptocurrencies today are better at some aspects of that, worse than other aspects of it, and are much more universally available. Where in principle, with some tech, which 
my company is very much working on right now, cryptocurrencies could actually be better at that than banks anywhere are today. And that would be a very good thing. So when you first came into the crypto space, it was because you're interested in making a tool that is less wasteful than our current monetary assets and system compared to gold? Well, you may recall, (laughs) I said I was working on problems to solve randomized three coloring problems because I thought it was important and interesting. So I don't, (laughs) my motivations don't always start with some high minded here is the political thing I am trying to accomplish with this. There's a lot of what are really interesting problems that are possibly important today with importance being judged in a much more abstract way and with the outcomes being viewed as much harder to break than people generally have. I don't work backwards from, oh, here's some political thing I want to accomplish, hence I'm going to do this engineering. If I thought that way, I wouldn't be an engineer, I'd be in politics. (laughs) But I'm an engineer. People who don't know my background have just sort of innocently asked me these questions like, when did you get started in crypto? How did you get involved in crypto? And it's like, I... I don't know how to answer that question. (laughs) I I got started in crypto 20 years ago, okay? I worked on Mojo Nation. That was a cryptocurrency. It was just as much of a cryptocurrency as Ripple is. It wasn't a cryptocurrency the way Bitcoin is because mining hadn't been invented yet, but it was trying. It was ahead of its time. It had all the features. And then that project imploded mostly because it was trying to do too many things and way too ahead of its time, which is (laughs) never a good thing. But if you're going to do a failure, it's good to have a truly glorious failure (laughs) than a merely sad failure. That's very fair. After Modernation, I went and took one tiny little sliver of the functionality of it, which was not even functionality that was viewed as central when people started working on it. And I started a new project uh, from scratch codebase and made BitTorrent. And then the way I got involved in cryptocurrencies more recently was people were pestering about them. I'm like, go away, go just scram. <laughs> right? First off, rando projects almost always turn out to be garbage. Second off, the thing people were getting excited about was prices going up, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. But if you buy Bitcoin, whatever that means, and you hold on to it, then hey, the, the price has gone up. I'm not interested in speculative investment as a thing. I I lived through the dot-com boom. (laughs) These are things that have happened many times throughout history. I I don't care about that. I care about real value getting created. People talk about how if the stock market goes up or down, this is, you know, wealth created or destroyed by society. And that's not, that's not true at all. This has no impact on the future productivity of society. It just has to do with how much does it cost you today to get what fraction of the future productivity of society. Society as a whole, in terms of what happens in the future, doesn't get uh, more or less wealthy when the numbers and accounting books move around, except to the extent that these numbers are predictors of how much productivity there will be in the future. And if they go down, this is a bad sign. But in that sense, they are a trailing rather than leading indicator. Anyway, <laughs> that, that tirade aside, eventually some people are like, Bram, there actually really is something interesting in Bitcoin. You should probably look into it. So I spoke to some people and they explained it to me. And I started spending time doing research on a do-do-do-do-do, coming up with thoughts and ideas about how it could be improved. And uh, eventually I just kind of randomly found out about the Bitcoin Wizards IRC channel. And I got on it and everyone's like, oh boy, Bram is here. 
Because like you, they'd heard of me. And it's like, they knew I was coming. <laughs> okay, all right. So anyway, I'd arrived. <laughs> so a whole bunch of people immediately came in and were very interested in hearing this conversation. Because at the time, the quality of, of documentation on Bitcoin was terrible. Even very high-level documentation explaining at core what is going on here wasn't available. There was the Bitcoin white paper, which isn't really written in the best way. So I was asking a whole lot of dumb questions. People were giving a whole lot of answers. Other people who were not important enough that people would answer their dumb questions were very appreciative of the fact that, that this was going on. And a funny story about this. So Andrew Polstra was one of the people who was there. And so he pointed me to the Bitcoin Wizards ASICs fact. And that fact makes the argument. It's not really so much a fact. It actually is making a case for something. Uh, uh, that document is saying that ASIC resistance is a fool's errand and a bad idea, and you should just go for ASIC friendliness so they're completely commodity. And I got into an argument with him about whether this was true. Now, technically speaking, the specific thing I was arguing for right there was uh, memory hard proofs of work, which it turns out, okay, I was wrong. Memory hard proofs of work don't help. Uh, however, I've come up with this very subtle involved loophole, which is proofs of space and time. And I, I fully intend that uh, I'm going to get uh, Chia uh, out there, uh, being used in real commerce, continuing to be stable and secure. And then I'm going to get Andrew to update the Bitcoin Wizards ASICs fact, and I'm going to win the argument. <laughs> I appreciate your pettiness. I aspire to that <laughs> level of pettiness. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I also think that this brings up like a really good point that I wanted to ask you about, which is uh, your motivation for making Chia. There's a lot of Bitcoiners that argue the only reason to invent a cryptocurrency now that Bitcoin exists, as opposed to making another layer on which you could do something with the Bitcoin, is to make the founders rich. But I'd be willing to bet that you in particular could get rich another way if that's what you were after. So in your mind... What is it that you want to accomplish with the Chia network, knowing that Bitcoin, the concept of stateless money, already exists? Oh, if I were trying to optimize uh, for just immediate getting rich without making getting rich be a side effect of actually making the world a better place, a person in my position would have gone and just done the biggest ICO they could <laughs> back <laughs> at the beginning of 2017 and taken the money and ran. And a whole lot of people with no name or reputation went and did that and got away with it and made stupid amounts of money with utter scam technology. That's not what I'm about. Here's the thing with Bitcoin. It's very hard to improve on Bitcoin. <laughs> I hear this. This is a frustration. Yeah. Well, there's two levels of this. The obvious one is Bitcoin is a legacy code base, and it's kind of stuck with that legacy code base. However, that's not really the main issue. The main issue is Bitcoin exists at this plateau of technology. It does a thing. The thing it does barely works. <laughs> it barely works at all. And it's very difficult to improve on it. And everybody, everybody, everybody thinks they have some genius solution for scaling that the Bitcoin core dev team just aren't smart enough to understand, which basically boils down to either straight up increasing how big blocks are or doing sharding. Now, sharding is a bad idea. <laughs> 
I think we can agree that I think scaling is not looking at the fundamental issue, right? The fundamental issue is trying to figure out what is an ideal adoption situation look like? Like, what do you want to use it for? Yeah, well, it turns out you can actually get like a factor of uh, two to four just by doing better engineering work. Skipping that. And the, the thing that frustrates me there is the reason everyone harps on that is because, well, they're not very good engineers and it's something they think they understand and can sound smart talking to the general public making these claims, even though what they're actually discussing is kind of inane and prosaic and passe. So people understand these things very well. So that is a thing that irritates me greatly. In terms of ways you want to improve on it, there's kind of two things going on with Bitcoin. Number one is the consensus algorithm. And I, I was telling this story about my argument with Andrew, because actually that's very central here, that there's this question of can you improve on proof of work? And there's a lot of projects that are doing proof of stake. Proof of stake is a step backwards. It is fundamentally centralized. Even what it's doing is centralized, and it runs into a whole lot of problems. And then people trying to make it work throw in bonding and slashing and checkpoints and a partridge in a pear tree. And it still doesn't work unless you know you want to do what a certain project did and just ship it. And now more than half of all the bonding is being done by Binance. Congratulations. Yeah, I think we can agree that the technical arguments for different kinds of scaling solutions at this point are a little bit irrelevant to people like me, at least. They might be relevant to very good engineers who can debate the specific merits. But I think the reason people get so caught up on them is they're still not understanding what they want to achieve with this tool. There's something that Bitcoin achieves. There's the whole reason why you care about it, which sounds very abstract. In order to explain why this matters, I have to I have to back up even further. Go for it. Let's talk about the finance industry. Engineers go, I'm going to improve on like Visa, right? I'm going to make something better than this. I'm going to make some piece of technology that does this better. I'm going to add in secure hash-based audit trails. I'm going to add in public key encryption. I'm going to make nice privacy features. I'm going to build a system that doesn't suck, that does like what Visa does or something like that. And then they build it, and then they go to, or, or maybe hopefully before they build it. <laughs> Some people have made that mistake. But they, they go to people and say, hey, why don't you use this? And they're like, oh, that's illegal for us to do. <laughs> you can't do banking without being a banker. You need to have license to do this. And then the technologists rail about the evil regulators stopping everything. Now, it kind of is true that the regulations are getting in the way of technology, but that, not really. Mostly not. The problem is, when the regulations are loosened, it doesn't result in technologists coming in building better technology. It results in complete and total scam artists coming in and scamming everybody. Because it's very easy to make feature lists that include all the buzzwords that never end if you don't actually have to back it up and build the thing. If you actually care about backing it up and building the thing, you're going to take a lot longer to ship a much shorter list of things. And by then, everybody's money is going to have gone to somebody else. Now, we had unregulated banking markets throughout the 1800s in the United States. There were banking crises every 10 to 15 years on the scale of the one that happened in 2008, 2009. Then we had the Great Depression, and then banking regulations were put in, and then banking crises stopped. 
And then this kind of shadow banking industry was created. The finance industry figured out that this really greatly valuable thing for society they could do was figure out ever more sophisticated mathematical ways of obfuscating leverage (laughs) in all the money they had on their books. And they hired all the smartest minds of their generation to study how to work on this very important problem instead of, I don't know, curing cancer or something. And uh, they got very good at it. And then we had this rise of a shadow banking system and it caused the Great Recession that started with the banking crisis of 2008-2009. That's the problem. That's why we have these regulations. And there's this question of, well, what is the real problem here? What is the thing that people need? And the answer is it's a trusted third party. As soon as you have a trusted third party in the system, the very obvious business model of that trusted third party is, oops, I accidentally your whole deposit. (laughs) And even if you start putting in these kind of gentle things where you're like, well, we're going to audit them and make sure that they don't just outright lie about deposits, you still wind up getting these situations where they increase leverage and they just keep cranking up leverage until somebody sneezes and the whole thing explodes. Yeah. So in order to fix this, if you want a technological solution to fix this, you need to get rid of the trusted third party. You need a secure distributed database. And that sounds completely oxymoronic. If you go and talk to database engineers of 20 years ago and say, hey, I need a secure distributed database, and you describe what Bitcoin does to them, they would tell you that's impossible. That can't be done. And then Satoshi came up with this idea, this wonderful, horrible idea. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's a bit of a myth that Satoshi invented proof of work. Proof of work is a very, very obvious thing to people who are cryptographers. However, There's this thing of if we want to secure distributed database, how do we do this? And the answer is, there's this very simple basic insight of, well, you and I are going to get into a discussion of what is the current state of database. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that went into the version of the database that both of us have, and whoever's weighs more wins. That's just how this is going to work. Then there's the next question of like, okay, well, that does work for achieving consensus quickly. Uh, especially if you make it so the database is mostly appended to, so it's acting as this reasonably persistent database. How do we incentivize people to continue building on it? And the answer to that is, oh, well, we're going to make it so that the database itself tracks tokens that are going to be worth something, and we're going to pay, the database is going to pay people with those tokens in this uh, very Marxist (laughs) um, activity of creating value by literally burning stuff. Hmm. Those are the basic ideas. There's some actually pretty interesting further insights about uh, how you do work difficulty resets here, which actually Satoshi did really, really bizarrely well. There's some strange stuff in Bitcoin where some aspects of it are done really badly and other aspects of it are done really, really well. And the subtle, finer details of how work difficulty resets are done look like a second or third iteration of the thing that, that was done super well. Um Bitcoin, for all its horrible flaws, is a secure distributed database, but it just barely works. It just barely accomplishes that. Because it just barely accomplishes that, it's really, really hard to improve on it. If you start messing around with things like changing the proof of work and stuff, it it all winds up boiling down to the same thing. If you want to improve on Bitcoin, there are two kind of categories of ways you could think about improving on it. 
Number one is on the consensus algorithm, and number two is on how it does payments. So if we talk first about the consensus algorithm, uh, Bitcoin is supposed to be uh, secure and decentralized, and it has this unfortunate thing that it's extremely wasteful. So we can discuss in coherent terms, hey, wouldn't it be good if we could have something that was more secure and more decentralized and less wasteful? The wasteful part is not important to the business of Bitcoin, but it's kind of, you know, that's eh, not good for the world. It would be better to not have that. Uh, so that's one place where you have a coherent set of goals. When people talk proof of stake, they do say that they're trying to make it less wasteful. They are not making it less centralized. That is making it more centralized in a quite scary way. And Bitcoin's level of centralization is pretty scary already, just to begin with. A literal handful of mining pools really run the whole show. And that's not a good thing. I think if I were to ever say that publicly, I would be absolutely crucified. So I'm glad that you're saying that. It's funny the things that I just come out and say <laughs> <laughs> that, that are like weirdly verboten for other people to say. Like the, the fact that apparently I was the first person to start publicly bad mouthing Satoshi's general code quality, <laughs> or at least not, maybe not the first, but one of a few who was bold enough to come out and make this statement. Now, all the Bitcoin core devs are well aware <laughs> of the code quality issues in the Bitcoin code base. This is not controversial in those circles, but it was a bit of a shock to other people. Going back to your earlier question, though. Oh, oh uh, first off, proof of stake. To its credit, people talk about making the whole thing less wasteful, but that isn't even in principle making it uh, less centralized when you start adding in proof of stake. It winds up adding a whole new set of attacks and types of issues that can happen that are actually quite scary. And the other set of ways you can try and improve on Bitcoin is in the on-chain programming environment and what you're trying to do there. And uh, what Ethereum did was like, hey, let's just throw all the mud at, a, at the wall. Let's just make it so you can write programs in JavaScript and they run on-chain. This is a terrifying, terrifying thing from a security standpoint. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it's controversial at this point to question the technical merits of some of Ethereum's plans at the moment. Really, when it comes down to it for Ethereum, the answer is colored coins. You can do new token issuances on top of Ethereum, and that is the main use. But what is the answer for Chia? Well, there's a list of answers for Chia. Uh, colored coins are one of them. We can do colored coins much, much better than Ethereum can do colored coins. Another set of functionality has to do with vaults. You have this big problem in Bitcoin that using Bitcoin feels like carrying around wads of $100 bills. <laughs> and <laughs> that's a problem. So you might want to have a functionality where you have uh, like a wallet that can only uh, send money to authorized payees, right? So if you have a company and there's someone who's paying the bills, you beforehand set who they can pay bills to and they can, they can do that. But it's very hard for anybody to fish them uh, by sending them uh, fake invoices uh, because they won't be able to pay to just random accounts. And it will be uh, very hard for them to embezzle any money unless they collude with uh, one of the vendors that they're allowed to pay money to. And you set this up so that you can at any time just go yank back all of the coins using some other key, uh, which you can use in case of emergency. 
that's one type of functionality you might want to have. Another one is having a wallet that can only pay out money at a certain rate. So in just, you know, normal day-to-day transactions, it's, you know, just being used, uh, paying out money. But if it ever gets compromised, then whoever compromised it only has a window until you notice that it's been compromised and call all the funds back again. And they can only steal an amount of funds proportional to how long that went on. Gotcha. So it sounds to me like what you wanted to do was invent something that was much more usable, both in terms of payments and in terms of different kinds of, of transactions, whether that be trading. Well, I want to enable all of these things, right? So uh, layer one, it's really a platform to enable things. And we are writing smart transactions that work in the Chia on-chain programming environment that do these things. Uh, but we're not doing that because we intend to be vendors of products that do this ourselves. We want other people to be vendors of products that do these things. And we want to enable that and build an entire ecosystem around what we're doing. Gotcha. But see this word ecosystem, I think I hear it like 30 times a day and mostly from people who don't know what it means, but you do know what it means. People usually use this word ecosystem combined with the word adoption. For you, when you imagine the future of, of cryptocurrency and Chi in particular, what is it that adoption looks like in your mind? Like what, what would be a success? I'm not going to claim to be some guru prognosticating. I mean, even the adoption patterns for BitTorrent were not what I expected at all. Uh, although they were very fast and large, obviously. To the extent that there's some kind of commerce being enabled that wouldn't have been enabled otherwise. And and when people talk about, I hate this phrase, people talk about the store of value use case, which is kind of like saying, what is your favorite use case for cars? Is it tires? Is it roofs? (laughs) Um, But savings are a thing that people do, and that is a kind of commerce. And if people are using uh, cryptocurrencies for savings, that that actually is a good thing. Hmm. I want to read through something with you because you'll know a lot more about it than I will. I've been reading lately about uh, Linux adoption studies. One of the researchers said uh, for one of the examples, a government example, they were using it, that a key success factor was that the decision was political and implemented in a holistic strategy. And then she goes on to say, the manner in which the open source software was viewed by users had a strong influence on the short-term and long-term adoption. So for me, that indicates that marketing and in some context governance as well is really crucial for making a software useful? What is the role in, in advocacy and um, in making something useful? Well, marketing matters. And Bitcoin has gotten kind of a bad rap because Bitcoin is viewed by the general public as being closely associated with drug dealing and money laundering. Which is kind of funny because Bitcoin is terrible for drug dealing and money laundering. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it's very really true. Not, it's not private at all. Um, there are privacy coins um, where some of those criticisms might be valid of privacy coins, but uh, Bitcoin is actually terrible about at those things, but is uh, strongly associated with it uh, in the public's mind. And I think that's something you really want to get away from. And I want to try to never have those associations uh, with my project, even from the very beginning. But on some level, wanting to be able to store your funds in a way where they're not just going to get stolen is a totally reasonable thing for people to want to do. And building technology to make that easier to do is an unambiguously good thing. Yes. Actually, I should probably say something about uh, governance, because you mentioned that word. So the reason why governance gets so touchy as a word is 
often it's used as a euphemism for we're actually not decentralized at all, and that's a good thing. <laughs> so to the extent that people use the term governance uh, to mean that, it makes Bitcoin developers and the Bitcoin community very annoyed because it's uh, trying to put a positive on fundamentally giving up on the actual core feature that this system has. I remember when you were um, starting Chia, and I remember thinking to myself how unusual it was that you went and got VC funding and then didn't do all the things that I was so used to people that were launching tokens doing. You were doing it in a, a way that seemed to me very familiar for traditional businesses. Why did you think that that was important, even though your intention is eventually uh, to have it be in some ways replicating some of the benefits of a decentralized technology? I actually have been told by some people that I'm an out there crazy person doing this completely insane thing of actually wanting to build my product before, you know, selling it. And also in terms of taking investment, uh, I, I think it's just profoundly unethical to take in money in ways where you're not being terribly transparent with the world about how you're taking in this money, what you're doing with this money, how it's supposed to create returns for whoever's putting the money in and without locking it up, right? Saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to take this money and I'm just going to dump it, right? And uh, a lot of crypto investors to this day are looking for terms and trying to do things that I think are just unethical. And sometimes they're righteous about how they're sticking it to the man by doing this stuff. And I, I, I don't believe in that at all. So ethics is one reason. Can you think of another way of like in terms of how you want the technology to be used and what features you want it to have that made having a traditional company structure better than or not better, but just different and a desirable choice for you, as opposed to a th the more cypherpunk collective that Bitcoin has become? So Bitcoin is very different from all the ICOs. The way it came into existence was very different. Uh, remember, in the early days of Bitcoin, people were just mining and anyone could go mine. And it was, you know, you could get market value, which was almost nothing for Bitcoins at the time. There's a broader community of people who believed in it enough to go and work on it. Now, you can't just get those people to work on a new project right now. They're all working on Bitcoin for totally reasonable reasons. <laughs> but there are highly ambitious things that I think are worth working on where you can get meaningful improvements on the state of the art in cryptocurrencies. And I wanted to make those things happen. And now I don't sit around spending my days thinking about the finer subtle points of financing structures. Other than that, I like getting them done with minimal drama and not a lot of bullshit. But one of the basic points is you don't want to do a pump and dump. You want to make it so that people get their hands on the stuff. And what you don't have is a bunch of people early on getting in specifically because they want to immediately get rich and then dump everything. And, uh, you know, traditional corporate structures are set up to do that. And ICO structures are not. I hear you. And I think this actually gets back exactly to the question I wanted to ask you um, when I was thinking about the Soviet experiments, because a book called um, How Not to Network a Nation is about the USSR. The line that really stuck out to me in this book was our technological capacity exceeds our political will to negotiate the terms of that capacity, meaning like we can make technology that can do all these things. And that's great. But whether or not that actually gets done with those tools 
has very little to do with the capacity and has a lot to do with who it is that's using it, how it is promoted, um, all these like different factors, the, the political human aspects. See, when you talk about uh, places, you know, like the Soviet Union or like China, there's a lot of delusion, right? <laughs> Being delusional does not move reality. And I really hate the fake it till you make it ethos that a lot of people have. That's not what I'm about. Uh, you get maximum productivity and maximum benefit to the world if you take a cold, hard, realistic look at what's going on and think very carefully about what are the chances that everything that I'm doing is complete bull <laughs> and how can I minimize that? Okay. How can I set kind of realistic goals for what I'm trying to accomplish? And I can tell you from a lot of experience, when you do this in software, and this is like one of the core things that product is supposed to do is triage and bring about reality to the system, uh, which can be annoying because it's hard to get funding if you're being realistic about what you're going to accomplish. What inevitably happens when you're realistic about your development roadmap is everyone gets the sticker shock of, oh my God, it's going to take us forever and cost us a ridiculous amount of money to accomplish almost nothing. And then if cooler heads are in charge, everyone sucks it up and they go, okay, I guess this is what we got to do. We're going to go for it. And then six months pass, right? And you've accomplished what you said you were going to accomplish in the amount of time you said you were going to accomplish it and with the amount of resources uh, that you had planned. And then you hit the day of something shipping and then you look at it and you go, oh my God, I can't believe how much we got done so quickly. <laughs> okay, fair. It's all a matter of perspective. I guess I'm still trying to figure out what does success look like? And I know that we won't really know until we either reach it or don't, but Right now, I feel the, the popular narrative is very much like all things should be done with cryptocurrency. Everyone will be using cryptocurrency. And that's what success looks like. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold on. The first question is how do we get anyone anywhere using cryptocurrency in a way that's actually good? Mm. So there's a lot of speculation that happens. And it's like, okay, that's speculation. I have my qualms with speculation, but it does provide liquidity to the market and can be a very helpful thing. So it's not uh, a bad thing that there's speculation going on. And then there's a question of like, how do we get stuff other than speculation to happen? How do we make uh, liquid markets between like cryptocurrencies and the local currency in various countries? And how do we make it so that people have tools they can actually use that are good for using these things? How do we make it so that increasingly payments are being done with it? How do we make liquidity in those markets? Those are the kinds of things one should be thinking about and viewing as the actual success measures. I don't think a simple, oh, look, we got rich is a terribly good measure of success. I mean, Bernie Madoff got rich. That's <laughs> Okay, fair. So you were saying... You know, if commerce is enabled, that wasn't already possible, then that's a measure of success. So Vitalik Buterin told me a very similar answer when I asked him. But when I asked him, like, today, right now, people are using DeFi products that didn't exist before, but it hasn't proven yet to be sustainable. Is that success? Like, have, have, we, have you reached it yet? And when will you know that you've reached it? Well, you get extreme success scenarios, right? The extreme success scenario 
is somebody in some country, uh, like Venezuela or something, gets up and goes to the market and the prices listed are all posted in Chia. <laughs> that, that's an extreme success scenario, but certainly one I'm going to shoot for. What do you think that you've learned about society throughout your career as you've been inventing these different technologies? In some sense, when people adopt my software, that, that's kind of like a very hopeful thing. That, that makes me feel good about the world, right? And that's been increasingly positive over time. I mean, we have these supercomputers in our pockets. The internet connects everybody. In some ways, uh, the world it is ludicrously better than it was when I was a kid. And this was in some ways expected because this is the continuation of a trend that's been going on since, at least since 1800. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the more I've worked with people and with organizations and seen just governance happen, the more cynical I get about everyone's motivations. <laughs> I can relate to that very much. Yeah. So, some huge fraction of the general public, all they really want to do is sit around doing nothing, ordering people around and basking in their own grandiosity. And some very large fraction of the general public thinks that even someone who is obviously makes everything up off the top of their head bullshit artist who puts that forward is the great leader who you want to put in charge of everything. And that's kind of sad and pathetic and not good for the world. Okay. So going from what you've learned so far about society is that a lot of people suck. If we're imagining a future in which Chia is successful, and that can be either radical success or it can be moderate business success, what role does Bitcoin play in that world? I, I think Bitcoin's kind of in, in the same general type of category. I, I have no delusions that I'm going to unseat Bitcoin <laughs> in any <laughs> short time frame. It could happen eventually, but that's a much longer term thing. If you look at the history of technology, you had these un-unseatable companies like Yahoo and AltaVista and Friendster and MySpace. <laughs> who had a total lock on the market. And there's no way anybody with no budget who was merely executing better could possibly unseat them, right? Except for, you know, Google and Facebook. But this this takes time. And the good thing about it is it's meritocratic. You only unseat them by radically outperforming them. And the world has been made a better place because you did something dramatically better in order to unseat whoever was entrenched. You didn't merely like do some better marketing or something. You see Chia and Bitcoin as having similar functionality. And if I'm understanding correctly, you can see a world in which both exist. I'm shooting for a lot of similar functionality, but, you know, Bitcoin's really explicitly not uh, shooting for having colored coins in any meaningful way. Bitcoin core devs are kind of against that functionality, actually. Uh, I'm going to be doing other things like working on distributed identity. Uh, there's this kind of niche thing of doing timestamps, which we can do a little bit better. So it's entirely possible that uh, we like do extraordinarily well and that we completely unseat Ethereum as being the platform of all the tokens people are doing, uh, but aren't really touching Bitcoin. But in terms of censorship-resistant value that someone would inherit and pass down, 
that's something that Chia is looking to do or is not looking to do? Oh, no, de most definitely looking to do it. And on some level, this is like very literal in the way the Chia on-chain programming environment works. In Chia, the persistent database is a bunch of coins, and that's it. It's here are coins, here's what you need to use to unlock them, and here are their amounts. And that's all that you're keeping track of in the entire thing, because that is really what it's all about, is how are you know, amounts of value moving around the system. Gotcha. So to wrap up for the day, is there anything else that you wanted to leave the audience with to think about? There's so much stuff that I haven't gotten into here <laughs> about all the cool tech we're working on with Chia, that the Chia on-chain uh, programming environment, uh, Chialisp, is really using very, very minimal functionality, ha having very little that can actually be done in it in principle. But with a whole lot of subtle cleanups, a whole lot of like everything, you know, everything goes through in parallel rather than serialized and transaction formats are a lot simpler. A whole bunch of just subtle don't look on their face like they're important cleanups to the whole thing. And then throw in a few kind of clever, don't sound that amazing programming tricks on top of that. And then all of a sudden it enables all this like amazing functionality within this on its face looks very limited system just by doing everything right. And so for people who know how to dive into these things, we have available in our beta where we're going to have actual smart transactions on the Chia testnet running chain. And so there's really interesting stuff to pe for people to dive into there. And even for people who just want to play with some toys without getting into how to program things, if you want to actually use space for the uh, space and time consensus algorithm that Chia is using, you can actually go do that now. You can make plots and uh, start farming it. So if you go to Chia.net, those things are available now. Wow, I feel like we covered so many different subjects today, and I really appreciate you coming on and helping me think through what all these crazy terms mean. Yeah, sure, sure. This was good. Um, you know, that with Chia, there's so many deep rabbit holes. I didn't really even get into explaining. I, I said I have some improvement on consensus algorithms. I didn't get deep into how proofs of space and time work and you know, a lot of other things, which is what I usually get all excited to talk about because this is what I spend my days working on. There's this weird thing where if you describe something in the abstract, it's just not the same as playing with it. It's just much easier to understand when you're using it and noodling with it. Gotcha. So I will definitely take away from this also that's important to get your hands dirty and experiment. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, this is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. Make sure to stay tuned for more podcasts every week. And for more interviews and insights, check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NIA, members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.